The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Ken, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today we're talking about Vietnam again, but this time we're talking about anti-war protests. Okay. (laughs) Such a light topic. Night. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, why were women drawn into anti-war protests? I mean, why? (laughs) (laughs) Brooke, we're going to be joined on this podcast by Dr. Jessica Frazier. She is an associate professor of history. Um, She's also in the uh, gender and women's studies department at the University of Rhode Island. And so obviously those two things together, history and women's studies, is right up our alley. What? What? (laughs) So in our last episode, we were talking about the war broadly and why it started. Um, But this episode should be a reminder to everyone that this war was incredibly long and cost Americans tens of thousands of lives. And one of the things that made the Vietnam War so unique is that It was something that people in the evening could tune into their TV stations and like watch clips from the front and see the war. And there were also photographs, you know, being published. And well, it wasn't, um, it wasn't just what the government decided to tell us either. It was the journalists now have to say. Journalists were, I mean, not to say that journalists weren't on the front lines of all previous battles, but in, in a way, uniquely. Media, yeah, you know, mixed media, not just writers, but you know, photographers and and cameras. And one of the things that makes that visual so m- much harder is, you know, and especially in a war like Vietnam, where victims are guerrilla fighters, victims right. are children, women, older people, you know, young young people, like. It, it makes it hard to see those visuals. And mm-hmm. I think in you could argue just media alone changes people's perception of what the heck we're doing here. So by the late 60s, there is widespread, you know, disillusionment with the war itself. Right. And a lot of women are drawn to that. And one of the interesting things is that um, women are drawn to different, you know, there's, is, there's sort of a gendering of the the things that people are protesting in the war, like the draft, um, you know, this is something that's impacting men. 
you know, and, and women have to almost like carve out a space in the draft protests for why they care about that topic. Right. Right. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. And yet women are drawn in large numbers to these, to this movement. And so I'm so excited to have Jesse here. Um, Dr. Frazier here. She is an outstanding historian. I've learned a lot from her. And why don't we start by having her introduce herself? Yay. Great. Hi, my name is Jessica Frazier. I'm an associate professor at the University of Rhode Island in the Departments of History and Gender Women's Studies. I am here to talk about women's roles in the anti-Vietnam War movement, and I became interested in this topic when I was doing my dissertation research when I was getting my PhD in grad school. I had been planning on researching women in Chicago society in the 1950s, and I went to the Chicago Historical Society to look at manuscript collections there. And while I was there, I opened up the manuscript collection of a women's organization called Women for Peace. It's also known as Women's Strike for Peace in other parts of the country. Um, And what I found out is that these middle-aged, middle-class, white women with children, often young children at home, were traveling to North Vietnam, the enemy of the United States, um, in the 1960s in order to find out what was happening in terms of the U.S. war there. And some of these women were traveling to Hanoi during times of heavy U.S. bombing over Hanoi. And that got me wondering what was going on. Um, and so then I started to look more into women's anti-war activism during the Vietnam War era. Some of the questions I'm hoping to answer are what were women's roles in the anti-Vietnam War movement in the 1960s and 1970s? Um, How did women's activism shape in the anti-Vietnam War movement? So how did women's activism shape anti-Vietnam War war rhetoric and arguments? And how did the anti-Vietnam War movement shape women's future activism? So, So we're in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. And we have the U.S. has is involved in Vietnam. And what we think we know in, in terms of the scholarship on anti-Vietnam War activism is that women may have been involved in the anti-war movement, but they were not leaders in the movement. We often think of people such as Tom Hayden, Dave Dillinger, Winnie Davis as the leaders of the anti-war movement. We also believe we know that but there was fallout in the anti-war movement in the 1960s and the late 1960s that resulted in an implosion of new left organizations, including the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, and that black power, women's liberation, and other revolutionary youth activists were quarreling at this conference in 1969, um, set up by SDS, and they ended up going their separate ways, and then that um, was a major problem in the anti-war movement. And these activists have often been blamed for the implosion. What is missing from this story, from this narrative, is the ways in which each of these groups had developed unique anti-war arguments um, that linked the U.S. war in Vietnam with social injustices in the United States. There's also, within this narrative, there's something missing about the people who were focusing on the single issue of the war 
are not being criticized and that they either would not or could not see how U.S. foreign relations connected with domestic policies. So we have black power activists, women's liberationists, and other activists trying to connect what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in the domestic U.S. with U.S. foreign policy. And then we have people who are focusing on the single issue of the war and um, refusing to see those connections between what's happening domestically and what's happening in terms of foreign policy. And that criticism is often uh, missing in these narratives that are simply blaming people for pushing against anti-war narratives that were too narrowly defined. So if we're thinking specifically about women in the anti-war movement, we need to be considering women in civil, the civil rights movement and in black power movements and other movements for social and economic justice, including Asian American and Chicano women. We need to be thinking about women who self-identified as feminists or as women's liberationists using the lingo of the time. And we also need to be thinking about women who identified as peace activists. And lastly, I do want to mention that, of course, women could fit into all three of these categories. They could identify themselves as peace activists, feminists, and be part of the civil rights or black power movements or other similar movements. So thinking first about women who identified as peace activists, it should be of no surprise that people who were involved in anti-nuclear movements in the 1950s were some of the first people to oppose U.S. intervention in Vietnam in the early 1960s. One such group, Women Strike for Peace, the group um, I mentioned at the at the beginning, this was the group that uh, kind of led me into this topic. That group formed in 1961, and it was in a group that formed against nuclear proliferation. They had a saying in in the arms race, not the human race. That was one of their slogans in, in the early 1960s. When the U.S. became involved in Vietnam, they were, they were very curious about what was happening. You know, why was the U.S. involved? What was actually happening in Vietnam? And in May of 1965, so this is then two months after the U.S. began bombing over North Vietnam, two white peace activists, members of Women's Strike for Peace, Mary Clark and Lorraine Gordon, they traveled to Moscow. It was They were invited for a commemoration of the end of World War II. So, um, and while they were in Moscow, they met with members of the Vietnamese Women's Union. This is an organization coming out of Hanoi that has links to the North Vietnamese government. And it was an organization that was trying to work on something that the Hanoi government called people's diplomacy, so people-to-people diplomacy. And both Mary Clark and Lorraine Gordon wanted to find out more for themselves about what was actually going on in Vietnam and why the United States was involved and what U.S. bombing meant over North Vietnam and all of those questions. Um, And so actually out of Moscow, they ended up traveling to Hanoi in May 1965 to see a little bit of what was happening. And then while they were there, they also planned a meeting to take place in Jakarta, Indonesia, a small meeting between about nine Vietnamese women and about 10 U.S. American women to take place in July 1965. And there, the U.S. and Vietnamese women could meet to talk more about what was happening in terms of U.S. intervention and how they could end the war. And this became the beginning of a decades-long relationship, in some cases, between American and Vietnamese women. And it also was the beginning of a fairly consistent, uh, a fairly continuous exchange of information between Women's Strike for Peace and, and members of Women's Strike for Peace and the Vietnamese Women's Union. Again, the Vietnamese Un- Women's Union is part of the, has connections to the, to the government in Hanoi. 
And over the course of the U.S. war in Vietnam, U.S. women's peace activists would co-host, along with Vietnamese counterparts, similar conferences between women. Some of them were just as small as the Jakarta one, where it was only maybe about 20 women in total there, and some of them were much larger. Um, they met in Paris in 1968, for example, and that one was between women in France, American women, and Vietnamese women, about 50 or so women there. They met in Cuba, they met in Canada, they met in Canada a couple of times in 1969 and again in 1971 um, for a much larger conference that included thousands of women, of Canadian and U.S. American women, and about six Vietnamese women and two Loatian women. Also beginning in 1969, a woman who was a member of Women's Strike for Peace, Cora Weiss, along with Dave Dellinger, who um, is a fairly well-known anti-war activist, organize monthly visits on the part of U.S. citizens to Hanoi. It would be about three um, U.S. citizens, usually two men and one woman or two women and one man, to visit Hanoi and, again, to just have this exchange of information what was happening on the ground in North Vietnam because at the time it was really hard for U.S. citizens to know what was happening in North Vietnam. North Vietnam wouldn't allow, um, wouldn't permit reporters from the United States into North Vietnam, um, generally speaking. Very few reporters were uh, permitted visas. And so there wasn't much news coverage. And so this was one of the things that the Hanoi government did allow non-state activists to go to Hanoi. So this was one way to find out information. An important point of the Women's Strike for Peace aspect of this story and um, women in peace movements is that they used maternalist rhetoric quite often um, to make anti-war arguments. So Women's Strike for Peace would say, not our sons, not your sons, not their sons. Um, and this built off of and added to anti-draft arguments against the war. Now, on the Vietnamese side, they did also agree with maternalist arguments, but uh, it became it was quite clear that being a good mother or being a good woman uh, also meant taking up arms in defense of their nation. And so there were Vietnamese women who took part in military activities. And there's an ancient proverb in Vietnam that uh, says something like, when war strikes close to home, even the women must fight. This was a, something that members of Women's Strike for Peace, many of whom were pacifists and didn't believe in violence for any reason, overlooked. But this became this image of Vietnamese women as capable of being militant became something that uh, other women involved in anti-war activities kind of honed in on and they could use that for their own um, needs, which I'll, I'll get to. So women in the civil rights movement and also in the black power movement, the civil rights movement being a movement in the 1950s and early 1960s that kind of changes into the black power movement in the late 1960s when it's a shift from civil rights, voting rights, things like that, to looking for social and economic justice. Um, so Coretta Scott King, the wife of Martin Luther King Jr., participated in WISP, um, so Women's Strike for Peace events, and also events hosted by the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And in 1968, she was at a, a Women's International League for Peace and Freedom conference. And there she said, quote, I am here to relate the injustice of the present war, the war in Vietnam, to the injustice of poverty and racism at home, end quote. And this is something that women in the civil rights movement, men in the civil rights movement too, but women in the civil rights movement did. They didn't, they took the anti-war rhetoric 
and the civil rights rhetoric, and they combine the two to show how U.S. domestic policy and U.S. foreign policy had similar problems. And Curtis Scott King wasn't alone. Diane Nash, who was a leader in the sit-in movement in Nashville, Tennessee in the early 1960s and had also participated in the Freedom Rides, um, she also had similar rhetoric and, and, and joined the movement for racial justice with um, the movement against U.S. involvement in Vietnam. She ended up visiting Hanoi along with three other American women in December of 1966. And this was during a period of heavy bombing by the U.S. over North Vietnam. And she was hosted by the Vietnamese Women's Union. And she was most struck when she went to Hanoi. She was most struck by the civilian casualties. She wasn't sure whether, you know, what U.S. bombs were hitting. And so that was something that uh, she paid attention to was that it was that there were a lot of civilian deaths happening. And she compared when she came back to the United States, she gave several press conferences, particularly to the African-American press. Um, and she compared the treatment of Vietnamese and African-Americans on the part of the U.S. government. And she was arguing that neither had full access to democracy promised by the U.S. government. And again, this was something that others in the civil rights movement were also arguing. They would compare the violence that African-Americans faced when they were trying to go register to vote with the violence that the Vietnamese were facing. And the fact that South Vietnam, which was supposed to be being upheld as a democracy, wasn't a true democracy in that who was presiding in Vietnam in the mid-1960s, they were not actually elected officials. A few years later, another African-American woman, Elaine Brown, who was a member of the Black Panther Party, so a Black Power group formed in 1966, she made similar comparisons between the treatment of Vietnamese civilians and African-Americans. And she, by the late 1960s, there becomes an anti-imperialist rhetoric in the anti-war movement through these types of uh, circles. So through Black Power activists and other revolutionary youth activists, they begin calling the United States an imperialist nation. And so then they, they begin using anti-imperialist rhetoric and saying that U.S. imperialism is the common enemy between, in Elaine Brown's case, Black Americans and uh, the Vietnamese. So there's a, a quote by Elaine Brown where she links African Americans and Vietnamese, and she says, African Americans whose, quote, own people are dying and suffering under racist, fascist terror right now here in Babylon, here in the United States, end quote, with Vietnamese who were, quote, concerned right now with the survival of their people, end quote. And her implication was that the U.S. government thought little of killing either African-Americans or Vietnamese. And so she's arguing that there's a similar state-sanctioned violence against both African-Americans and Vietnamese. And she also, bringing it into women's activism and, and a possibly feminist perspective, um, so she also wanted revolutionary generals within the Black Power movement and looked to militant Vietnamese women for inspiration. And so she looked at the fact that Vietnamese women could fight and were supposed to fight as good mothers and as part of their womanhood as something that black women, especially black women in the black power movement, could look up to and say, you know, we, sh we should also be able to take on these militant roles when in this movement, as well as um, just like Vietnamese women can. It does not preclude our femininity. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. 
Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the product is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10 minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) But they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, No, very funny. (laughs) But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Um, So their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project and then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through instagram facebook we have a venmo account you can find us there that's awesome Um, and they're making those contributions so yeah it's an amazing thing and if this is something that you're like yes that's what teachers need any every penny helps because it is a really expensive project it yeah totally and we had a match donor for a while there too which is really cool so definitely if you're interested in those yeah feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. So Elaine Brown wanted revolutionary gender roles within the Black Power Movement because she was faced with this common problem where men weren't allowed to make the decisions and women were supposed to be doing the cooking and cleaning. She went to a, a meeting in the Bay Area um, a black power meeting in the Bay Area where there were decisions being made and she was called into the kitchen to help make whatever meal they were making for the men and the men got to stay out in the living room and talk and then she was called back into the kitchen to clean up and this whole process of her role in these meetings really upset her and so she decided that she needed to create revolutionary gender roles within the black power movement. And she looked to Vietnamese women as for inspiration in that she saw them as being able to have these militant roles and also be feminine. And women in the Chicano movement faced similar challenges as women in Black Power movement in that they were kind of pushed away from decision-making roles and were supposed to be doing the cooking and cleaning and staying in the kitchen. And they also, unlike African-Americans, the Chicano movement and Chicanas, Chicanos were at the forefront of making connections between the Chicano movement and the anti-war movement. So there was a newspaper, El Grito del Norte. It was led by an editor, Elizabeth Petita Martinez. She found a way to uniquely connect the Chicano movement with the anti-Vietnam War movement. And again, it was U.S. imperialism as the common enemy. But she argued that just like Chicanos who were fighting for land rights in the southwest of the United States, the Vietnamese 
were also fighting for their land. And so this is how she made a connection between those two groups of people. Chicanos were, at the time, they were in the heat of land struggles in the southwest of the United States. And they traced their history back to the Mexican-American War of the 1840s. And, and they claimed that there was land theft on the part of, quote-unquote, Anglos following the war. And so this became part of the rhetoric that Martinez and Agrito del Norte and Chicanos connected to. In terms of gender, Chicanos looked to Vietnamese women in similar ways as African-American women did, showing that they could be both militant and feminine. But they also traced their own history, uh, their own Chicano history, arguing that pre-conquest, women in the Americas had respected roles in society and that sexism had come from and come with conquest, European conquest. And so they traced their roots to indigenous cultures in the Americas and they claimed that it was European imperialism that created sexism. And for Vietnamese, it was U.S. imperialism that was causing sexism. And they also were arguing that both Chicanos, like the Vietnamese, were waging a battle for cultural survival um, and that Chicanos had a key role to play in this battle for cultural survival. Turning to Asian American women, we see that they face similar challenges as other women in anti-war and social justice movements, again, facing sexism within the Asian American movement. They also had the unique challenge of the invisibility of Asian Americans in U.S. society. At the time, in about 1970, Asian Americans were about 1% of the U.S. population. And they were often either seen as Asians in America or they weren't seen at all. So they were not visible in the U.S. psyche. But during the U.S. war in Vietnam, Asian Americans faced racial epithets, so anti-Asian sentiments. A lot of anti-Asian racial slurs were slung at them. And this wasn't new in terms of the 1960s and 1970s, but Asian American women were often seen as both sensual and doll-like and exotic. Asian Americans were facing anti-Asian sentiment in the United States due to the U.S. war in Vietnam. So they had a unique perspective on the Vietnam War in terms of the fact that they saw themselves as uh, more closely in relationship with the Vietnamese in terms of they would say things like it was just a chance of birth that they were born in the United States rather than in Vietnam. So there was a more direct connection of the fact that they were all Asians uh, of Asian descent. And so they looked at the Vietnamese as relations. Most of Asian Americans at this time were of Japanese, Chinese, or Korean descent. Asian American women also looked to Vietnamese women as paragons as a certain kind of womanhood, but they saw themselves as sharing a common history and heritage. And they saw Vietnamese women as on the vanguard of a new society where women could be both revolutionary and also see to their family duty. So there was like a, a more direct relationship between Vietnamese. They saw themselves as having a more direct relationship with Vietnamese women in terms of their common Asianness. So coming out of all of these movements and women's anti-war activism more broadly are various versions of feminism and ideas about women's liberation, what it meant to be a feminist, and what women's liberation could mean. And there were also specifically feminist anti-war arguments coming out of these. So some of these we've already touched upon. But in 1971, Women's Strike for Peace, along with a couple of other organizations, hosted the Indochinese Women's Conference. Women's liberation activists were also key in hosting this event. And women of color were invited to help host, but they were not given the same type of means of actually 
kind of having a, a say at the ground level. So in attendance, there were two different conferences that made up the Indo-Chinese Women's Conference. One took place on the East Coast in Toronto, and the other took place on the West Coast of Canada in Vancouver. And six women from Southeast Asia attended from Vietnam and Laos at the time. By 1971, the U.S. was also involved uh, in Laos. And one of the central questions in the Chinese Women's Conference, in particular for women's liberationists, was why the war was a feminist issue. What made it a feminist issue, something that women who claim to be women's liberationists, why should they care about the war? And they came to the conclusion that it was the way that the war was waged that made it a feminist issue. So the fact that rape and sexual violence were used as weapons during the war, that made it a feminist issue. Also, they came to the conclusion that the changes in South Vietnamese society, which is where the U.S. was supposed to be involved in in making and building and maintaining and upholding a democracy, that the way that the South Vietnamese society actually functioned, that that made the war a feminist issue because they saw South Vietnamese society as deteriorating under U.S. intervention. So, for example, they pointed to the fact that there were about as many prostitutes in South Vietnam as there were GIs in South Vietnam in the early 1970s. Um, this happened because women and children and men had to leave rural villages to move to Saigon where it was safer. And women turned to, many women ended up turning to prostitution as a form of survival. Um, and so these were a couple of the points that came out of that, that conference where this is why, why war is a feminist issue because of the way that war is waged makes it a feminist issue. There is particular gendered aspects to the way that war is waged and also the effects of war is a gender, you know, has gendered um, aspects to it. And so this is why it's a, a feminist issue and this is why women and women's liberationists and feminists need to care in particular. At this conference, attendees also connected. They connected some of the dots that were happening in the various different movements, the Black Power Movement, Civil Rights Movement, Asian American Movement, Chicano Movement, Women's Liberation Movement, and Peace Movement, they began to see connections between the different oppressions that various groups faced. And so today we would call this intersectionality, or we could see this as the beginning of of seeing intersectionality. At the time, they were speaking about imperialism, capitalism, sexism, and racism as interconnected issues And they were arguing that these issues were brought to Vietnam through U.S. intervention, and they were also the causes of problems within U.S. society as well. And so going back to some of the questions that I was raising, some of the central questions of this, so what were women's roles? So women's roles in the anti-Vietnam War movement, they, although um, they were often pushed to the side and pushed to do cleaning and secretarial duties, many women fought that and decided to try to take on leadership roles themselves. And they came up with their own rhetoric. They came up with their own arguments against the Vietnam War. And in turn, they also, through their Vietnam, their anti-Vietnam War activism, they also came up with unique versions of feminisms that spoke to and um, theorized the connections between oppressions of women in the United States of various ethnic and racial backgrounds and women in Vietnam. Dr. Frazier, thank you so much for sharing this interesting history with me. I have to admit my, I'm feeling like 
very much a generalist as I'm listening to you and learning about women in this movement. And for me, I, I, I'm realizing that I didn't realize there were so many standout individual women that were involved in this movement. And I knew women were in it because, uh, you know, a lot of the pictures of the movement are of of women holding flowers and, you know, and, and, and in line and marching. And probably my favorite picture is this woman who has a sign that says bombing for peace is like effing for virginity, (laughs) you know, those sort of things come to mind. So, you know, I, I know they were there, but I guess I didn't realize that there were so many named women there. And thank you for illuminating that for me. Yeah, I do. I think that the women they seem to be more in the background of our knowledge. And so, yeah, they're not named. We do have the men being named. So people know that Dr. Spock, for example, was against the war. People know Tom Hayden, I think, is a pretty common name for people to know. The one woman that I think people do know when I was writing my book project, and I mentioned that I was talking about women in the anti-war movement, and especially I was talking about women traveled to North Vietnam, everybody came back with Jane Fonda. So that's a, a name that I think people know she was against the war, but she wasn't the only woman who was against the war. And right. she wasn't necessarily part of some of the conversations that I was researching and that um, have come up for me. So there's so many other women and they were positioning themselves in like multiple ways against what was happening in the anti-war movement. So I think some of the part of the anti-war movement that many people know about is the anti-draft movement, which is a very male-dominated movement, a very young male-dominated movement. And I think people even imagine it as a white male-dominated movement, although it wasn't necessarily that either. But women also positioned themselves in favor of the anti-draft movement in a couple of ways, especially in 1966-1967 and going into 1968. So they were positioning themselves, you know, the women that are part of Women's Strike for Peace, and, you know, the, the the mothers and middle class white women generally uh, positioning themselves as mothers. And so they have the saying, not our sons, not their sons, not our sons, not your sons, not their sons. Um, and then there were younger women who weren't positioning themselves that way because they were college age and they didn't have children. And that didn't make sense to position themselves in the anti-draft movement in that way. But they were still not placed in a position of agency in that there's an image, a poster of Joan Bias and her two sisters. And on the, the poster, it says, girls say yes to boys who say no. So it's this very sexual, sexual objecti- objectification of women, a yeah. self-objectification of women. And so there was a pushback against this. And there's a pushback against this within feminist circles, within women's liberationist circles, as it w- would have been known at the time. But other also a a pushback from women in the Black Power movement, women in the Asian American community, women in the Chicano movement, who also did not want to position themselves as sexual objects and had been, you know, African-American women. There's a long history of them being. Yeah, sexualized. Yeah, and I think Asian American women were facing the same thing. That was part of the the anti-Asian sentiment of the time was a sexualization of Asian American women. and these are exotic women who are sexually available in a certain way. They're all pushing against that and coming up with their own narratives, their own anti-war narratives. And so I think that's very significant in terms of talking about the anti-war movement is first how people within society saw themselves and saw each other and thought it made sense to make anti-war arguments. Mm. And then also what they were doing 
especially the the groups that were trying to change U.S. society. Because they were trying to change U.S. society, they were trying to tear down the social norms. Then they were able to push against, you know, I don't have to be a mother to be against the war. And I don't have to be sexually available to be against the war. Hmm. I can do something else. That's so interesting that there are sort of these positions that people can be in and they use that position to make, to voice an argument for the war. And then, um, but then also realizing that this is a pretty diverse movement. It's not just young people. It's not just moms. It's not that there's a lot of, a lot of people, men and women. It's, you don't have to be drafted yourself to be opposed to the draft. So, wow, that's, that's really really insightful. And I feel like a layer that needs to be improved, at least in the way that I've seen Vietnam history taught, Vietnam War history taught, uh, and especially the the protests, right? It's, I think of, you know, Martin Luther King and Muhammad Ali and some of these big names that that spoke out. I think they, they are just one piece of this like very multifaceted movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what's really interesting about it too, is the the multiple ways that people saw U.S. society and what it could become. So there were some people who were against the war, and I think they were okay with the way that the U.S. society was. But there were a lot of people who were part of different types of liberation movements. So they wanted a new society, and they saw the war as part and parcel of the problem with what was happening within the United States, that, you know, the U.S. is okay with doing this type of foreign policy. They're okay with being with uh, intervening in this nation in this way. That's also why they're treating our communities like this, that it's like very much connected to foreign policy and the domestic policy in their eyes are, are very much on the same page where I think others who were against the war were simply against the war. They were okay with whatever the U.S. was doing at home, you know, that, so they weren't against the domestic policies. Um, interesting. That's kind of like the the spectrum of, of you know, maybe more, progressive politics or something um, represented there as well. Yeah. 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 Wow. So your book is out and available for people to, to purchase. Where can mm-hmm. you find it? So they should be able to find it on Amazon. Of course. It's also, it's published through the university of North Carolina press. It's available there as well. Oh, amazing. Well, I hope everybody goes, buys this book, reads and learns more about how the women that they <laughs> forgot to get in. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Dr. Frazier, thank you so much. And um, I am so grateful to you and all the research that you've done. This is just wonderful. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.